Thank you all for praying with each other, uh, and thank you all for being here tonight. If you have a Bible, we're going to open up to Amos chapter 4. Uh, Amos, maybe not uh, the most uh, Christmassy book of the Bible, but yet it really leads into the Christmas story in a not-so-exciting way or in a not-so-enthusiastic way, uh, yet an important way and nonetheless uh, a necessary uh, transition from old to new. Uh, so if you have a Bible, if you would like to open up to Amos 4, uh, what we're going to do in the next couple of weeks, we are pausing our First Corinthians Bible study, not because I don't want to teach you all about um, some very uh, deep, uh, deep truths from 1 Corinthians 11. If you've read that chapter, you know that it's really a doozy and, and, and can't wait to the new year to deal with that. Um, and it, it really is it's a good chapter, but it's, it's uh, one that I think that we can put on pause for right now uh, as Christmas is right around the corner and the next four Wednesday nights uh, will be all about um, the Christmas story um, and we'll, we'll spend most of our time in Luke 1 and Luke 2 and we'll end up in Luke 1 later tonight if you want to go ahead and put a bookmark there. Not far from Amos, of course, if you want to just wait and turn. Uh, but we're going to spend most of our time the next couple of weeks in Luke 1 and Luke 2, which is where the traditional Christmas story is recorded. Uh, but before we get to Luke 1 we got to talk about how the Old Testament ended uh, because uh, the, the minor prophets give us some pretty important information uh, about, uh, about the, the stage that they set and about the transition but from the old to the new. Um, but to set us up, um, as you find your places in your Bibles, um, I, I want to make sure that we're all in the same wavelength tonight. I want to make sure that we're all um, kind of uh, ready for and prepared for this text and this conversation. So I want to ask you a question, and, and it's kind of more of a riddle. Um, but, but one that I think that we'll figure out pretty quickly. Um, so which came first? Which came first? Christmas lights or winter darkness? Uh, that's kind of the chicken and the egg kind of question, right? Uh, Christmas is known for its lights, uh, for as long as I've uh, celebrated Christmas, which again isn't as long as, as some and, and as long as it's been around. But uh, I associate Christmas, I think you associate Christmas, um, if, you, if you were to describe aesthetically or, or visually what Christmas is, is, you know, what represents Christmas or what, you know, reminds you of Christmas. Uh, Christmas is known for the lights that we string up and hang up and light. Uh, but, but isn't it true? If not for winter's extra darkness, the lights wouldn't stand out near as much and they wouldn't burn quite as bright. If we celebrated Christmas in June, when it stays daylight, as much as I like it, and as much as you like it, when it stays daylight to nine o'clock, there wouldn't be much Christmas lights to look at, right? Because it would get dark so late and you'd already be done for the day and you wouldn't get to appreciate them. And again, we, we associate it so much with the winter season. We bring, we bring the trees indoors because they won't survive outdoors. That's why Christmas trees became a thing. Uh, we light them up because there's just not any light outside. So we have to artificially bring some light our way. Again, if it wasn't for the extra darkness that winter brings, uh, the, there wouldn't be a need for the lights, but also the lights would not burn quite as bright. So, so what do you think? Was it dark and then we plugged in the lights or did the lights get plugged in and then everything get dark? I, I think you kind of know the story, right? I think you know the obvious answer. Um, the world was very dark and God turned the lights on. Uh, the world is very dark, and we turn the lights on to remind people that there is a way and there is a path to hope and to help and to salvation. And, and I think that it's appropriate that we think about this tonight, and I don't think it's a coincidence that 
this season uh, of Christmas comes in this season that we call winter, where it's very dark and very cold and, and uh, often quite hard to see. Uh, it, it's the darkness of winter that sets the stage for the brightness of Christmas lights. And as frustrating as darkness may be, it's the intense darkness of winter that causes the light to burn so bright and so brilliant, right? That when you got drive through McCaddenville or you drive through a, a neighborhood that's so lit up with Christmas lights, um, you wouldn't appreciate it if it wasn't so dark. You wouldn't appreciate it if the, if the winter darkness didn't set that backdrop so perfectly or, or maybe imperfectly. So it's the spiritual truth that seems to, be influence, seems to be what influenced the early church leaders to declare that December was the perfect time to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Now, I, I don't come up here to burst any bubbles tonight. I think most of us kind of know this, but I want to kind of talk about this just to kind of set the stage. Um, but it never hurts to make the truth known because I, I want to make sure that the things that we celebrate as true um, are, are not, uh, we don't group anything in there that just isn't true or that's unfounded. Um, Christmas was uh, not celebrated in December until around 336 AD. And, and most believe, historians believe, or historians have re recorded that uh, the, the Roman Empire declared December 25th um, as the day that Jesus was born or decided to celebrate the birth of Jesus in December uh, of, of 336 for the first time. Uh, again, before that, there, there wasn't really a concrete date given to the birth of Jesus, and there wasn't really a spe specific festival associated with the birth of Jesus. Now, it's important that we, that we, that we talk about this because um, that's as far back as we can get um, where there is an actual date given to the, the celebration of Jesus' birth. Um, even that far back, as close to it as they were, 300 years removed, um, nobody had any, had any real concrete information about Jesus' birth because it was so obscure. And the only details about Jesus' birth are in Luke's gospel. No other historians record anything about it. Only Luke, of course, it's true, but Luke doesn't give us any dates. Luke just tells us who the emperor was, and we know that he ruled from such and such time to such and such time. He tells us when the who the governor was uh, between such and such time. We know, but we can't really pinpoint the exact day or the exact year. So uh, nobody paid attention to Jesus outside of, of, of Luke. Nobody gives any attention to Jesus' story until he's about 30 years old. Um, so again, there's no hard evidence for his birthday. And again, you won't find December 25th in your Bibles. Um, so there was a lot of guesses and a lot of clarifications throughout history, which is why that the, the kind of the target has moved through the years. Uh, the Roman Empire originally formatted a new calendar to unify the world around um, its new adopted faith because Christianity had changed the world and because they wanted to signify the transformation it brought on the world, uh, Rome introduced a new way to mark history and to, uh, to, to understand history um, in the 300s. And they did so with this naming convention that you've heard of before. Uh, they came up with BC and AD. So they drew a line in the sand uh, and they said, okay, we're going to draw a line in the sand in history. We think we figured out what year Jesus was born in. So we're going to draw a line in the sand and anything before that, that year, we're going to call BC, which is before Christ. And anything after that year, we're going to call A.D., which is a fancy Latin phrase for year of our Lord. Uh, so they tried, they thought they had it figured out, and they backtracked through time. Um, and, and as time went on, um, they, they actually realized that 
maybe they didn't have it exactly right. And, and this is why um, you'll hear people say Jesus was born in like 2 BC or 4 BC because originally they thought they had zero down to the right to the science. And then they realized, I don't know about that. Maybe we were a few years off. And again, there's no biblical evidence for what year whenever it happened. So they were just guessing. Um, so that's why you might see in a study Bible or in a, you know, an article, um, Jesus was born in 4 BC. And you're thinking, well, that doesn't make any sense. How was he born four years before himself? And again, that, that 0 BC was just an arbitrary guess. Um, and, and that's why you'll hear people say Jesus died in 33 AD. And then maybe you'll hear people say he died in 30 AD because, it, again, it's it shifted through uh, the years. But why am I talking about this? Um, but I, the reason why I bring all this up to you tonight is to explain that the early church was trying to figure out um, in the 4th century, when was Jesus born? And they, they thought they had it nailed down, and, and, and their best guess was he was born in the fall of the year or in the latter half of the year. Originally, they thought, they thought it was the year they gave 0 BC, but it turns out it was a little bit before that. But they thought, hey, we think he was born sometime in this time period, sometime at the end of the year. Um, it's, it's reason to believe that he probably was born around the festival of the Day of Atonement because the shepherds were in the field watching the flocks by night. You know the story. And the reason why they would have been in the field near Jerusalem in Bethlehem is because they were raising the sheep that would have been, that would be slaughtered in the, in that festival season. Now, in fact, that actually happens a little bit earlier on in the fall. But nonetheless, uh, the Roman, the church decided that, hey, we're going to decide to celebrate the birth of Jesus in December because we think that it's the perfect reminder of what Christmas is all about. And again, this might make you, this might not be the fairy tale that you want it to be, but this is why they decided to do it when they did it. And, and I think it really is awesome that God orchestrated all this. They decided that December was the perfect time to celebrate Christmas because it was the darkest and coldest season, which made it the perfect background in the backdrop for the message of Christmas to contrast the world's dark and cold condition. They believe that celebrating the birth of Jesus in this season would punctuate the story more than ever. Now, listen, if God didn't want us to celebrate the birth of Jesus when we're celebrating it, he's had 1,700 years to change it. I, I don't think it's a really a big deal when we celebrate it because, again, the message is the message. But God has put his hand on it, and clearly, um, in retrospect, it makes perfect sense that we celebrate the birth of Jesus in the darkest and coldest season of them all. Because, because winter's darkness creates the most appropriate backdrop for Christmas lights. And I would, I would reason to guess that God had inspired those early church fathers to make this decision. But again, we don't, we don't know why they did what they did. We can just infer and we can just kind of hunch. But, but it sparks even further, speaks even further to the condition of the world as the very first Christmas approach. Because while we turned the lights on during this season and we're reminded that God brought light into the world, there was a time when there was no light like we have it today. There was a time before Christmas ever came when winter's darkness was a picture of what the world was like en masse and, and across the board. Um, it's like the old carol says, long lay the world in sin and error pining. The world before Christmas was dark and it was messy and it was broken. But just like the darkness set the stage for the light, the mess set the stage for Messiah and the brokenness 
longed for the miraculous that Christmas brought to the world. And that's the thing about Christmas. The light and the miraculous that it brings, it doesn't just come and go. It, it came and it stayed. Do you, do you understand that? That Christmas wasn't just a one-time event that lit up the world for a night or two. Christmas came and it changed the world forever. And this is why the early church decided they should celebrate Christmas. Uh, originally, they only celebrated the resurrection of Jesus because he died and he rose again. But they, be they began to understand that we need to celebrate the birth of Jesus because that's when God turned the light lights on. That's when God moved into our neighborhood. That's when God came to be with us and he has never left us since. And it's a big deal. There was a world that was empty and dark and cold and broken and messy. And there was a point in time when God stepped into the world and he didn't just step into it as a king. He came into it as a baby. He became one of us in the truest of sense. So we ought to celebrate the day that God became one of us because that changed everything. And what season reminds us of the patience of God and the grace of God more in that he would enter the world as a baby and he would put off doing anything about the mess the world was in for 30 plus years. He would be with us in the mess for several decades to show us that he loves us and he didn't just come to fix us. He came to be with us. He cares about you, whether you change or not, whether you are fixed or not, he loves you. Anyway, and that's a message that Christmas reminds us more than ever. And yes, we long for the miraculous. The mess sets the stage for the Messiah. And that's the thing about Christmas. The light and the miraculous that it brings, it doesn't just come and go. It stays and it changes the world forever because the Messiah changed everything. Jesus changed everything. He didn't just pay a visit once and say, I'll be back later. He didn't just sprinkle some magic on, the Christmas, uh, on Christmas Eve. Uh, he came once and his presence has never left. Listen, you and I, you and I have never known a world where the presence of God was not with us. That's something the ancients can't say. Right, and as, as much as we like to groan and moan, and I'm not picking on you, I'm just saying, hey, we like to talk about how bad things are and how broken things are and how messy things are, and, and I, I hear you, right? But you and I have never known a world and we never will know a world where God is not with us. We shouldn't take that for granted. So while we celebrate but once a year, the lights only shine so bright for a few weeks. The message of Christmas is that the lights have come on for good. Miracles are now possible. They were impossible before, but because God is with us and the lights are on, brokenness can be healed. Miracles can happen because Messiah has come to stay. The reality is, though, you don't always feel like this is the case. If, if I just guess a little bit and, and I kind of prod, there are times in your life where you don't feel like the light is as bright as it needs to be, where you don't feel as if the miraculous is even possible, where, where you don't feel like God is as near as we sing him to be and as we believe him to be. Uh, Christmas might warm your heart for a few days, uh, but even some years, Christmas is hard to get excited for because 
of your circumstances. And, and I understand that. The, the reality is for a lot of us, our hearts are like those whom the first Christmas came to all those years ago, um, where maybe the darkness has just gotten our, has, has prevented our vision. There's fogginess that keeps us from seeing. Um, maybe you feel like God isn't that close. But 2,000 years ago, God wasn't just far away. It was worse than that. He was silent. He was silent. There was a season where he was at the, where he was at the beck and call of Israel, his chosen nation, but then he just went dark and he just went silent. And again, you and I have never known a world where the Bible is not open. You and I have never known a world where we can't listen to preaching, we can't follow Bible studies, where we can't get into God's word and hear the revelation incomplete. But there was a time when God went silent. And they didn't have any Bibles, and there were no prophets, and there were, was no church. There was no gathering of the saints like we know it today. There's a lot of reasons why, the, why silence happened, but just like there may be a lot of reasons for the silence and darkness that you're experiencing that many are dealing with tonight, uh, I want to run through some of the reasons why God went silent for Israel and why things went dark for Israel. And I, I have an I have idea that some of the reasons why Israel faced this darkness and experienced this silence, I have an idea that this might be similar, the similar situation might be for us. Uh, the number one reason why people face spiritual darkness and why people feel like God is silent is they face traumatic events and they have an unfortunate reaction. Um, we all face crises, and there are times where we face crises where things happen horribly, things go horribly wrong for us, and we react by turning from God. We feel betrayed, let down, confused, discouraged, and rather than seeking God in the mess, we give up on God. Listen, I hear people all the time, well, I, you know, I was feeling bad, you know, something bad happened to me, so I just decided I was just going to quit believing. And you think, well, what? that doesn't make any sense, but we all do it, right? Bad things happen, and the first thing we do is lose faith. Bad things happen, and the first thing we do is quit believing or lose our connection to God. That a lot of us, the number one reason for people who lose hope because life throws a curveball that we can't process, and we allow it to turn us from God. Maybe a little less severe, but as much, as equally as effective is the number two reason. We get distracted and we drift and we lose connection. Again, less dramatic, uh, but equally as damaging. A lot of us get distracted. Faith isn't the trendy thing for whatever season we're in. We get busy. We juggle too much. We deprioritize God. We, he, we put him on hold and, and we just never return to the line, right? If you, if you and I talk to each other and, and I put you on hold and I just don't ever come back, eventually you're going to hang the phone up because why would you just stand there and wait, right? And a lot of times we put God on hold and God sees us with a hundred other things that we're putting first and he says, okay, you want less of me? Have at it. I'll be here when you need me. I'm not gonna let you go. I'm not gonna give up on you. But if you wanna drift away, if you wanna lose connection, then hey, go ahead and do what you want to do. Number three reason why a lot of people give up is there's a season where God is testing us. There's a season where God allows it to get silent and God allows it to get dark because God is testing us. Sometimes it gets dark and quiet because God is trying to see how bad we want him and create within us a hunger for him, whereas we had been complacent and careless. So maybe the reason why things are dark right now and silent right now for you and your spiritual life is because God is testing to see how much and how bad 
you want him. Number four reason why things get dark and things get silent is simple sin and rebellion. We, the reality of our situation is that we fall into temptation. We disobey and we disobey and to the point that we push God out of our lives. He didn't want to leave, but we didn't really give him a choice. I think all of these can explain the darkness and silence in our world, in our relationships, in our lives. Something happened where we didn't rest in God. We turned away from God. He allowed us to walk and we chose to disobey. All of these reasons can fit into why Israel fell into darkness and why God put them, God went silent for them for 400 plus years in the time between the Old and New Testaments. The nation that had God's ear, the people that were God's, the apple of God's eye, rebelled and drifted, were wounded, and rather than seeking God, they sought after other remedies and other solutions. They turned towards the world and they found, all they found was more darkness and deeper silence. God saw it coming though. He sent them prophets to warn them of what was going to happen. He tried to get Israel's attention as they drifted and turned away. But ultimately, they were just giving into what the whole world had succumbed to. And that was the darkness that had swept over the world. Uh, look outside. Again, nobody can escape the darkness entirely. Eventually, it catches up to all of us. Whether we're tempted, whether we're hurt, whether we just fall asleep at the wheel, darkness can catch up to any of us. It's hard to outrun. The nation of Israel was no exception. If you've got your Bibles open to Amos 4, listen to how God, uh, what God tells Israel about how he tried to get their attention. And you'll notice a line that is repeated, and, and I'm gonna let you try to figure it out yourselves. You'll, you'll catch on pretty quickly. And when you understand that, I want you to highlight that line that God repeats in these verses. This, we're jumping into God talking to Israel. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when there were still three months to the harvest. I made it rain on one city. I withheld it from another. One part was rained upon, and when it did not rain, the part withered. Two or three cities wandered to another city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I blasted you with blight and mildew. When your gardens increased, your vineyards, your fig trees, your olive trees, the locusts devoured them. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I sent among you a plague after the manner of Egypt. Your young men I kill with a sword, along with your captive horses. I made the stench of your camps come up to your nostrils, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I overthrew some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you like the firebrand plucked from the burning, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel. Because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Now that may sound like an ominous warning, but there's also a measure of hope to that. Because if you know the whole story, God doesn't just judge the nation of Israel. This era gets judged, yes, but the nation of Israel as a whole meets God in a way that they could have never deserved to, right? But we hear this message from Amos. God says to them, I have done all of this. You know, we often talk about God's judgment. And we often, sometimes we talk about it in a, with a little bit too much glee. You know, like, oh, God's gonna judge them. God's gonna judge them. But, but listen, do you know why God judged Israel? Because he was trying to save Israel. 
right? If you talk about God judging some group of people with the, with, with the, without the idea that God's doing it because he loves them and wants to save them, God in the Bible never judged people just because he wanted to burn them to the ground, right? He judged people because he wanted to save them. Yes, lives were lost, but the people as a whole, he wanted to save them. God is telling Israel, I brought this this trouble on you because I wanted you to return to me and I kept trying to get you to return to me after every time you tripped over and stumbled over my grace. They wouldn't return to him. Eventually the darkness overcame them and and, and flip over to chapter 8 verse 11 and 12 and and listen to the the ultimative or or the, the, the word that God gives them as he's signing off or he's about to sign off. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, not a famine of, not a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of God. They will wander from sea to sea, from north to east, run to and fro, seeking the word from the Lord, but they shall not find it. So God tells Israel, hey, Israel, I know you've gotten annoyed by me sending my prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, I know you've gotten annoyed by, the, by these little prophets that are always saying, repent, repent, repent. But, but there's a day coming where you're not going to hear anything from me. You want silence? I'm going to give it to you. You don't want to hear from me? I'm going to give you what you want. And of course, Israel realized they didn't want that. But again, you don't realize what you really need until sometimes it's gone. Uh, but Again, this is a scary warning from God where God says to Israel, I am going to go silent. God would send one last prophet to Israel to pour over them his passion and his love, and that was Malachi. And if you know the story of Malachi, if you want to flip over to Malachi, Malachi doesn't just uh, uh, warn Israel or or give Israel a, a message of doom, but Malachi, who tells them this is the last word from God for a while, This is the last word from God for 400 years. Malachi signs off in in a very, very compassionate, heartfelt way. Malachi opens up, and and I love the way he he describes his word from God. It says, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel, my Malachi, that this was a burdened word. This was a heartfelt word. Listen to what he says in verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you will say, in what way have you loved us? And listen to how God describes his love. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And again, God say, this is in the Old Testament when we hear God compare Jacob and Esau. He's telling Israel, I didn't pick you because you were better than anybody else. I picked you over Esau and his generation or in his tribe, not because you deserved it, but because you were the least deserving. You know the story of Jacob and Esau. Jacob swindled the birthright from his brother. Jacob stole the blessing from his brother. Esau deserved it, yet God gave to Esau what God gave to Jacob, what Esau Deserved. So God makes a point to Israel that he chose them, not because they were the greatest, but to prove to them that in him is life and to show the world that the light only comes from God and God's blessing. 
So as the whole world wandered in darkness, the light was supposed to spread through Israel. God said to Isaiah that the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. That great light was supposed to be Israel. A beacon to the world, broken and immersed in sin and shame. Yet Israel put a lampshade over that light. They hushed God's prophets. They didn't listen to them. So God turned out the lights and God went silent on them. Malachi says, God is not doing this because he's angry. God loves you and you've turned away. Over in Malachi chapter three, we hear some prophecies as before he signs off. God promises them in chapter three, verse one, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So Malachi is telling them God's about to go silent. It's about to get dark. But while the curtain is closed, he's gonna prepare the stage for his return, which will hopefully be your return as well. Flip over to chapter four, verses two through six. To you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. You shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel with the statutes and the judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of that great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn the heart of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So here's what God is telling the people through Malachi. Listen, I'm going silent on you. It's gonna get dark. And if I never speak again, it would be a bad thing for y'all. But thankfully, there's gonna come a time at the end of this 400 years where I'm gonna turn the lights on. I'm going dark because you asked for it. I'm going dark because I want y'all to understand what life is like when I'm not there, what life is like when I'm not over your shoulder, whispering in your ear, saying, this is right, that is wrong, do this, don't do that. I'm gonna give you what you want, but I'm promising you, I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna show you the way. And not only am I gonna show you the way, I'm gonna come and be the way in your midst. So I think it's an important distinction to make God gave Israel over to darkness, but he did not give up on them. Do you see that? He gave them over, but he did not give up. Because when you turn the page from Malachi to the New Testament, the new covenant in the making, the gospel of Jesus Christ begins. Luke 1 is chronologically the beginning of that story. The beginning of the story uh, where where God um, is going to break the silence. And of course, Luke 1 is the beginning of the Christmas story. And we'll turn there and we'll close with a few verses from Luke 1. The Christmas story, if you summarize it, it is the story of God's faithfulness to us, to the world. He was about to turn the lights back on for Israel. He was about to end the silence. Some of them were seeking him, but most of them were not. Yet he remained faithful to them all. I want you to listen to how the story goes. Luke chapter one, verse five. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. 
And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, your, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have, a joy, have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be in the sight of the Lord, and he will shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. In quoting Malachi, the last prophet, he will also go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man. My wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings or this good news. If you wonder where we get the word good news from, it's right there. A couple things stand out here. Zacharias and Elizabeth were still seeking the Lord even though they were directly affected by the world's brokenness and disconnect from God. They were barren. They could not have children. They were in a, a, a part of a group, a community of people who were directly affected by the absence of God, the silence of God. But I want you to understand this. For over 400 years, a remnant of, of faithful, dedicated men and women to the temple. They remained faithful to the temple. They remained focused on the promises of God for 400 years. You know how many people died in that 400-year period? not hearing from God, not seeing the salvation of God, not seeing the fulfillment of what Malachi promised. How quickly do you and I want to give in the towel just because God does not answer a prayer after a week or a month or a year? How quickly do we want to give up on our loved ones or on our family or on our community or on our church or on our nation after four, eight, 10 years of, of, of falling away for 400 years. They held on. Verse 8 through 10, it tells us that Zacharias was a part of a division, and that's just a fancy word for a community. This group of men and women, they stayed committed to the promises of God because they knew this, that God gave us what we wanted. God gave us darkness, God gave us silence. It got very dark, but we believe that God is going to be faithful. We've just got to be focused on him. Verse nine says they upheld the tradition and custom of seeking the Lord. It wasn't popular, it wasn't trendy, it wasn't easy. Church, you know what this tells us and what really the, the message of Christmas and the miracle of Christmas depends on? We must keep seeking the Lord by faith, not by our feelings and not by our sight. This is the most difficult thing to get across to church members, I think, that there is. 
because we know better than to live by our feelings or live by our sight, yet we all do it. If we are going to get a hold of the Christmas promise, the Christmas message, the power and miracle of Christmas, we have got to seek God by faith. You can't just follow what's going on in the news and get immediately discouraged. You can't see what is in front of you and lose heart. You can't follow people on social media and compare and contrast your life and, and get down on yourself. It is not by how you feel. It's not by what you see. It's by who you believe in. So many of us are driven by our feelings, yet the Bible teaches us we should never pay attention to our feelings. Listen, I don't care how good you walk out of a revival service, do not live by that good feeling. On the same token, how bad you may feel about something right now that's going on in your life or in the world, that feeling is not greater than your faith. Christmas is not about how good you feel when the music is playing. It's about the faith you have because God turned the lights on. He said, I am going to return. And he did. I love this verse from John. By this we shall know that we are of truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. God is greater than your feelings. How do you think Zacharias and Elizabeth felt about their situation? Not good. Yet they kept seeking and serving and worshiping. Why do we have Christmas? Because two people looked by faith and not by feelings and not by sight. Romans 8.25 says, For if we hope, or yeah, 1 John 4, that's a good one. I didn't mean to skip that one. For greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Yeah, there's a spirit in our world that's all about how you feel and what you see and all that, but we live by faith. We live by the promise that God's put in us. Romans 8 says, for what we hope, for if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Our hope is not visible. It is not something we can feel yet we still wait for it because we know it's real. What basis of feelings did Zacharias or Elizabeth have? They had no good feelings at all, yet they kept praying, they kept believing, and this is important. They were there when God broke the silence. Listen, inevitably, when God breaks the silence, people and people start and life start changing, a lot of people want to get in on the good. And God is good enough to let people in no matter how, what time they come, how late they are. But don't you want to be there when the breakthrough comes? God has a word for everybody today, just like he did for Zacharias, because his word is forever completed and open and accessible for whoever seeks him. Listen, you, don't, you and I don't have to be in a temple at a certain time, certain place, certain day of the week. C Christmas is the story about how God broke silence and has turned the lights on. His revelation is constant. You want to have an experience like Zachariah did? When he was in the holy place, just open your Bible every morning. That's how good, that's what Christmas has done for the world. The revelation of God is constant. When we sit under God's grace and allow him to do wonders in our lives, the miraculous can be the norm. We underestimate what God can do in our lives because we don't sit under the grace and power of God. Christmas has given you access to that. 
The darkness isn't going to go away completely. There's going to be plenty of times where the connection feels fuzzy, things look hazy. But God sent Gabriel to meet Zacharias after 400 years of nothing. And what does verse 16 say? That God was going to send a child to Zacharias to turn many of the children of Israel back to the Lord their God. And again, we're not of Israel, but we are people who were far away from God. And God started something at Christmas that was meant to turn us back to him. Christmas is a time to renew all of our faith. But after December, the lights are going to go off and the music's going to stop. But the goal is that we might stay and that we might remain and that we might continue to be faithful. When the lights go off, when the songs grow dim, when the silence and the darkness comes back, will we keep praying and seeking and serving? Unlike Zacharias, who was hoping for something to happen or wishing for something to happen, you and I know that it can happen. You know what Israel had going for at this point in history? They had a fake king, an oppressive government. They were slaves. Yet there was a remnant who still believed. Christmas beckons to us. Don't give up. Don't quit believing. You never know when God is gonna show up and turn the lights on and bring his revelation back. And of course, if you have a Bible in your hands, the revelation is there. It's not based on time or place. It's based on hunger and thirst. The Bible is an open book. The Holy Spirit has been descending for thousands of years. It's as simple as you plugging in your Christmas lights at home. Will you plug into him? Will you connect with him? John the Baptist called people to turn back to God. He still calls to us. He points to Jesus. And, and, and if you look back up at Luke 1 through 4, Luke 1, 1 through 4, in the prologue, when Luke is writing to Theophilus, the guy that, that supported him in writing this and, and investigating this story, in verse number 4, listen to what, listen to what Luke says uh, that, that Theophilus can have confidence or, and, and, and the, the, the confidence Theophilus can have when he reads this book that you may have the certainty of those things at which you have been instructed. So Luke is writing this to show us that God is trustworthy. Christmas, more than anything, reminds you that God is trustworthy. We have certainty. The lights have been turned on. The book has been opened. God's spirit has poured out. So the message for uh, that we're going to get into for the next couple of weeks, the promise of Christmas is the brightness and miraculous of Christmas can be the new normal. It can be if we keep believing, if we keep praying, if we keep serving, if we keep obeying. But let me give you a little spoiler for what we're going, where we're going with this. Look over at chapter or verse 59 and 60 of chapter one of Luke. Because this is the thing about Christmas. It's going to teach you and it's going to instruct us to do things differently than the world has taught us to do things. When Elizabeth had come to term and they, brought, she had, they had the baby and they brought him to be circumcised, it says on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, no, he shall be called John. But they said to her, there is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. Listen to what the world's going to tell you. The world is going to tell you, you can't, you can't do it that way. 
You can't can't walk by faith. You can't believe that God can do the impossible. You can't believe that God can change your life and that God can turn the lights on in your darkness and speak to you in your silence. That's not how you're cut. That's not how you, that's not how it works. The world is going to look at you and say, Christmas isn't every day, folks. Christmas is just one day a year. Don't don't get overboard. The world's going to look at us and say, (laughs) nobody in your family has that name. Nobody in this world works that way. So let's just do it the way we've always done it. Let's get worried when we're supposed to get worried. Let's get scared when we're supposed to get afraid. Let's go by our feelings. Let's go by our sight. Let's be like everybody else. Christmas says, no, no, no. There's a new way. The miraculous of Christmas, the breakthrough light of Christmas can be the new normal but we have got to be there when God pours his spirit out. Can we, can we make a point this Christmas to be here? I don't mean in this building, not hurt, doesn't hurt to be here, but I mean be there under the fountain of God because Christmas is the promise that he has been pouring out and turning on his light for 2,000 years. If we want it, we can get it. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for the promise of Christmas. Lord, we're just getting into it, but thank you. Thank you so much that you set the stage. You perfectly orchestrated all of this in the darkest season of the year, in the coldest, wettest, uh, messiest season of the year. You have given us a reason to have hope, not because we feel like it or not because we can see far, but because you have turned your lights on. You have broke through our darkness. You have broke through our silence. You have given us the confidence that we have hope. Lord, thank you for those first believers. Before even Christmas came, they were there being faithful. They were dedicated to you. And when Gabriel showed up to Zacharias, that was the start of a brand new era of revelation where you have come to us and poured yourself out to us if we will just show up and we will just turn to you. Christmas is all about getting us to turn our hearts towards you. You've got our attention, God. Let us not be distracted. Let us not turn away, but let us keep our eyes on you and let us do things the way the Christmas story proves to us is the new and possible way where the miraculous and the brilliant and the brightness can change our lives. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.